Comey was spying on Trump. Well, the reason he was writing the memos was to create a record so that he could destroy No him. American knowingly colluded with the Russians to interfere in our election campaigns. Oh wait, unless you mean Hillary Clinton. Pardons, prosecutions, and transparency. You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hey, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us. Uh, As the election crisis continues, that will be the bulk of my update again. A lot to talk about. Plus, we have a big Flynn pardon that's happened. And Judicial Watch has some new documents about election security as it related to the Obama administration you're going to be interested in learning about. Uh, but first up, I hope you've had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I took uh, my uh, some time off last week to enjoy the holiday with my family. I hope you were able, um, despite the uh, restrictions of the corona tyrants, able to enjoy your holiday to its fullest. So um, we're now in the Christmas season. Can you believe it? After another, uh, it's another year. And, uh, and unfortunately, the constitutional crisis continues uh, with uh, the disputed election. The president of the United States gave a 45-minute presentation that I think is worth reviewing uh, this, this week about the various election issues. And he highlighted something that's very near and dear to Judicial Watch's work, which is the number of extra names on the rolls. And what do I mean by that? You have more names on the rolls in a lot of these states than are living there and eligible to vote. And uh, it's a simple analysis. You take a look at what the registration numbers are And then you compare and contrast that to the census uh, citizenship, uh, citizen voting age population. And the latest numbers on that, I think, go through through either 2018 or 2019. So it's not an exact match, but it's the best available match. It's the best available number set that you can review. And uh, the numbers show uh, that in hundreds of counties across the country, you have more names on the rolls than are eligible to vote. And of course, that's a pool from which fraudsters can operate and also highlights the fact that the states aren't taking reasonable steps to clean up the rolls generally. And that's why it's reckless to push out mail-in balloting uh, to the rolls and it, and it leads to more opportunities, as I say, for fraud and whatnot. And I think we're seeing evidence of that in the contested contest across the United States. Uh, there have been further developments. Uh, if you've been following um, our analysis here on uh, Judicial Watch, uh, you know, and we've been the leader, frankly, in highlighting, I shouldn't say the leader, a leader, because there are other good folks out there doing some great work, uh, in highlighting the role of the state legislators, legislators and legislatures constitutionally and Congress in the electoral process, uh, the electoral college process. Uh, For all the noise we hear about the courts, in the end, under our constitutional system, the state legislatures uh, decide who the electors are going to be that participate in the electoral college, uh, then uh, that uh, picks the president. Now, uh, if the election is compromised in any significant way, It's been my view, and it's obviously uh, a rule of law approach, that the state legislature should step in and appoint a clean slate of electors. And I think that's uh, something that needs to be done. 
in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, et cetera, because of the uh, compromise of the election process caused by the tsunami of mail-in ballots. Now, we've been warning you that this was foreseeable. The left planned on this. They wanted to set up a system in which it would uh, kind, of, kind of break uh, our election integrity uh, structure. So structurally speaking, the elections were broken in Pennsylvania. Structurally speaking, the elections were broken in Wisconsin. Similarly in Georgia, uh, I encourage you to review the uh, Trump lawsuit filed just a moments ago, I, should, uh, I guess a few hours ago in Georgia. It's a state action that questions the certification of the elections. And in the, it, it, it's a, a civil rights case. The left only allows leftists to pursue civil rights cases, but Donald Trump, he's not allowed to pursue civil rights cases on his behalf and, and the voters who voted for him. Uh, but uh, when in Georgia, for instance, you had the Secretary of State agree to send out uh, ballot, um, absentee ballot applications to the entire voter registration list, more or less. And they changed the signature requirement. And this was all done with a, with a sort of a consent decree legal agreement with uh, the left. And the signature requirement under law is, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here or summarizing, is that you get the signature of the ballot, of the absentee ballot, and you compare it to the signature in the original voter record. Well, they changed the rules, not the law, the rules. Of course, the rules are supposed to follow the law to uh, only require them to compare the signature to the request for the ballot signature. So you could have a fraudster sign a request for the ballot, and then they send the ballot to them the fraudster signs the request, signs the ballot again. So they're essentially under the new rule comparing two fraudulent signatures together. And they don't go back and look at the original signature in the voter record. So when you hear the president talk about and others talk about a signature audit in Georgia, that's what they mean. That's what they mean. And I've warned, and frankly, everyone in the major media was warning, when you look at the uh, re rejection, re rejection rates of mail-in ballots, in 2016, they were you know, one or 2% in many cases, which is a big number in a close election, obviously, so meaning that you get a ballot and there's a reason to reject it. Either it's too late, uh, the signatures don't match, uh, the ballot was filled out incorrectly that invalidates it, all, all sorts of reasons why mail-in ballots get thrown out, which is why I've always encouraged people, the best way to ensure your vote is counted is to vote in person. So you had a one or 2%, let's say one or 2% rejection rate in 2016. In 2020, during the primaries, it popped up to 3% because you had a lot of new people start using this new method of voting. And so the concern was, and the warning was, and don't, take my word for it, you can, you can go out and research it on your own. You can look at the news articles talking about the concern about rejection rates, that you would have rejection rates of three, five. In some cases in New York, there was a 25% rejection rate. 
And based on that analysis, I thought millions, you know, millions and millions of people would have their votes rejected. Oh, well, imagine what happened on election day. All these, oh, it wasn't election day. It was a, it's still election. Well, it's actually now election six weeks, right? Uh, you have a rejection rates of two tenths of a percent, three tenths of a percent. How does that work? You know what that means? It means they weren't really checking the signatures. Or they came up with a review system that basically just washed them through without any reasonable verification to ensure the ballots were correct. So if you had a register, in the least, you had a registration, uh, excuse me, a voter, a mail-in ballot rejection rate of 1%. And frankly, it's probably would have been 3 to 5% given the new people who were participating in the process. And but on but when it comes down to it, it turns into a rejection rate of 0.2 or 0.3%. How does that work? It obviously doesn't work. And it's an indication of not only fraud, but that the rules weren't followed. And if the rules aren't followed, there's no way you can fairly certify the result. So those are one of the issues. I mean, that that issues in in in, in numerous uh, uh, states. I mean, we focus on the battleground states because the election outcome hinges on how those states operate one way or another. But you can be sure that issue was uh, is occurring in other states as well. So don't just because you live in a state where the election went dramatically one way, or you know, no one's going to question the outcome, or at least the uh, the general outcome of the election. But that doesn't mean that type of insecurity didn't happen in your state or locality. I mean, there's an election for Congress in New York where there's this gamesmanship going on about ballot counting. So it isn't just the presidential race. So when it comes down to it, um, you know, the courts have been um, not too keen to pursue the claims being presented to them by the Trump team. They filed claims in Wisconsin. The Supreme Court of Wisconsin uh, ducked that and told them to go to the lower court, which would effectively delay the resolution in a way that would moot it out. The Supreme Court hasn't acted yet either. Uh, when you look at the key court decisions in Pennsylvania, they're just afraid of the consequences of of the uh, structural attack by the left on our election systems. Because they recognize that, well, if people like Fitton are right, if people like the Trump campaign are right, if people, if, if these everyday citizens are right, we'd have to th basically invalidate a key portion of people, uh, 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 significant numbers of votes. And they're afraid to do it. They're afraid to do it. In some ways, I don't blame them. Now, I'm being, before you go crazy, I'm just being charitable there. I think the court should do it. <laughs> the law and the facts require it. But in the end, it's the state legislatures. Uh, and the state legislatures have this independent constitutional authority 
uh, to designate the, the slates of lecture, electors. It's not only constitutional, but it's, it's similarly referenced in federal law. I've cited to you the law before. You're supposed to pick your, your, your electors on election day. And if you don't, the states need to step in. Does anyone think those states really picked their votes on their electors on election day? I mean, I would read it to mean they can't be counting ballots after election day in a way that changes the outcome of the election. Even if you read it in a more limited way, there's it simply still hasn't been done in a way that uh, fulfills federal law. They haven't picked the winner. And if they haven't, then the state legislators need to step in and legislatures need to step in. Now, uh, in some states, you have a Democrat governor and, and most of these states, it's, I could go through each one, but there are states that there is a split between the governor and the legislative control where you have Republican legislative control and a Democratic governor. In other states, it's a Republican governor and a Democrat, a Republican legislature. I'm not sure what the makeup is in Nevada, though. But in Arizona, for instance, it's a Republican governor, a Republican legislature, same in Georgia. Pennsylvania, it's a Democrat governor, uh, Republican legislature, and I think it's the same in Wisconsin and Michigan along those lines. So some of these legislatures say they can only come into session if the Senate, if, if the governor calls them in to deal with this particular issue I'm talking about, or uh, they can um, uh, call themselves into session upon two-thirds vote. Well, that may be true for state law, but this is a constitutional issue. They have plenary power under the Constitution. They don't need the governor to tell them uh, that they don't need the blessing of the governor to exercise this constitutional right, this constitutional power that's explicitly given to them in the Constitution to appoint electors. The governor can't get in the way of that by invoking some sort of state law. The constitution is king in this regard. And if the constitution is king, the state legislatures have independent authority to act. They don't need the permission of the governor to come into session to consider the issues I'm talking about. And they have a positive constitutional duty to come into session, investigate, and uh, figure out whether the structural elections, the structure of the elections were such, was such that they can have confidence that the alleged winner was actually the winner. I don't think any fair-minded reading of what went on in California, well, California is a whole different matter. I mean, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, whatever, can give any uh, legislature uh, confidence that the election was conducted validly, validly. I mean, in Georgia, it was conducted contrary to state law. In Pennsylvania, it was conducted contrary to state law. So what happened here is the left changed the law, changed the rules. And that's gonna result if the law is followed in President Trump winning. That's the way it would work. And I don't say that because I want President Trump to win. I'm not saying that because I am, am advocating an election result. I'm saying that because I want the rule of law 
to be followed. I want the law, I want the election result to reflect a lawful count of the votes, a legitimate count of the votes, a process we can be assured is reasonably free of corruption. And the way they handle these ballots, there's no way that can be assured. Now, as I said, the president highlighted this in his speech. Uh, he referenced the fact there are extra names on the rolls as Judicial Watch has been pursuing. We have a lawsuit in Pennsylvania, 800,000 extra names on the rolls. Over 650,000 extra names on the rolls in Michigan. Michigan's a mess. Georgia is a mess. I encourage you to go back and look at our uh, press release that has our most recent study. I mean, I think we found 1.8 million extra names on the rolls. Just looking at 37 states, we couldn't even get all the most recent data for some of the states. So it's even worse than I'm telling you about. So we've got litigation in North Carolina. We have litigation in Colorado. We have litigation in Pennsylvania to clean up the rolls. And in terms of dealing with the current election crisis, we have a dozens of FOIAs, open records requests across the land in these battleground states to figure out what went on. Hopefully we can get documents sooner than later. I don't want to overstate how quickly those documents can come out. But even by sending in the requests, we put the government officials on notice, don't mess with the documents, don't mess with the truth. Because if left to their own devices, as you know, documents will disappear. But once you send a FOIA request on in there, it pressures the agencies to maintain the records. So the state legislatures have independent authority. And then, of course, Congress, in the end, gets the vote on the electors. And, and the major media won't tell you this. I've told you this before. I'm gonna tell you again, because I know we have always new viewers and I wanna remind you what the constitution and the law is. And the constitution vests authority in Congress in terms of blessing and uh, essentially blessing the electoral college outcome. So there could be a few issues that come before Congress. You could have dueling slates of electors. Let's say in Pennsylvania, the Democrat governor authorizes a slate that reflects that Joe Biden won. And the Republican legislature authorizes a slate suggest, uh, that supports President Trump's election victory. Then it goes to Congress and they have to decide which slate to take up, right? And the law, uh, uh, it's not really clear as to how they should figure that out. Federal law suggests they have to um, uh, basically come down on the side of the, uh, the slate certified by the chief executive. Well, A, implication as to what executive means, and then B, as I highlighted with the Constitution, that could be unconstitutional in the sense that the Congress vests the power in the state legislature, not the chief executive of a state or commonwealth. So that's an interesting question, isn't it? And then if, let's say that all these electors just went to Congress as is. Let's say it, 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 it's the, the votes go, no, nothing gets changed, a Georgia 
Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you know, none of, none of the litigation works, the legislatures fail to act. But ultimately, Congress can decide, and they can look at Pennsylvania, they can look at Georgia, and they can say, hey, look, all these issues, we can't trust the outcome of those elections. Those mail-in ballots were handled inappropriately, contrary to state law, that raised civil rights, civil rights concerns. And so we're going to challenge the ballots. So what happens, um, according to law, is that you need one objector from Congress, from the House, and one objector from the Senate. And then they go their separate ways to two bodies because they were meeting in joint session. And they debate whether in the House and the Senate, and it's a majority rules, that um, whether to uh, uh, challenge the objectors or, or sustain a challenge. Now in the House, because it is majority rules, we know how that will turn out. In the Senate, I don't know how it will turn out. In theory, you will either have a, you could have a, on January 6th, it's not clear whether you'll have a Republican majority. I think at most you will have a 99 senators, if I'm, if I'm correct about the seating of uh, the senators from Georgia, assuming both senators in Georgia become, um, you know, that, that the uh, Republicans retain those seats. So I don't know how it's going to turn out. Or... Oh, so let's say there's a let's say it's a Republican Senate and they all vote to uh, kick out uh, electors from suspect states or refuse to consider them in the cat. What happens then? You have the House saying one thing, the Senate saying another. How is that adjudicated? It's unclear. John Eastman suggests is a great, great constitutional expert, just a great guy, too. Uh, he suggests that the presiding officer who would be the vice president, John uh, uh, Mike Pence, he could make those decisions as to how that's adjudicated. And he also suggested maybe the Supreme Court comes in at that time to try, try to figure out what the law means. Now, the other possibility is that the state legislature say we can't send electors. And then... Um, in theory, it could go to the House, and that process, if there is a short, uh, uh, if there is a, if there aren't elect enough electors to put someone over 270, it goes to the House, and then in the House, that process is a state by state vote, a delegation by delegation vote. And because best I can under, best as I understand it now, the Republicans control at least 26 delegations. So you could have the House pick President Trump in theory. Now, on the other hand, there's an interpretation, and well, maybe it's just the majority of electoral college votes. I don't know. That's the debate. Now I raise all these issues because. I want you to know that it ain't over yet. And you have an important role to play as a, a citizen and a voter. And which is to communicate with your elected officials about what your views are about how things have been going and what they should do. Call your state legislators. Obviously, if you live in the battleground states, uh, there's an added level of urgency. And you should also call your members of Congress. And that goes beyond just the battleground states, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. 
Ask your senators, what do they think? Ask your congressmen, what are they going to do? Ask your state legislatures, legislators, what are they going to do? Where, where's the leadership from them? I want to know where the leadership is. We had Congressman Mo Brooks, who is a Republican from Alabama. He said the truth. He said, look, I'm going to be challenging these objectors, these electors. He's going to make an objection. Not one senator has come forward to support that yet. So you need to focus on the Senate and ask them where they are. I'm not telling you what to say. You guys are big, big boys, big girls. You know what to say. You may even disagree with me. But the left media would have you believe it's out of your hands. It isn't out of your hands. You have a right to petition your government, a God-given right to petition your government, and dang nabbit, you better do it now. You better do it now. It's pretty clear we can't rely on the Justice Department to do anything. You had uh, uh, Attorney General Barr this week saying he didn't see any evidence of fraud in a way that would change the outcome of the election. I don't know what evidence he's looking at or who's he relying on, but that was a political statement. As I've described to you, it's up to the state legislators. It's up to Congress to decide whether there's enough fraud to challenge and change the outcome of the election. So Judicial Watch will do the heavy lifting. You've got, obviously, the Trump campaign doing its the advocacy. Sidney Powell's out there, this lawyer. Lynn Wood is out there. Other groups, the Thomas Moore organization is out there uh, doing some great work as well. There's all sorts of people behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, I urge you. People say, you know, we should pray for President Trump. Of course, we should pray for President Trump. We should pray for Joe Biden, too. We should pray for everybody. But there are a lot of people behind the scenes who are doing excellent patriotic work trying to ensure that these elections uh, are subject to the rule of law. You won't know their names. I mean, some of them work for Judicial Watch, but I, I know a lot of other folks who don't work that I've been talking to and they get zero credit and they're working working themselves ragged to get the work done and those of the many of them are public and if they're public they get attacked viciously and god bless these whistleblowers who have come forward it's regular joes regular janes coming forward to 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 testify to testify and i use that word in the moral and legal sense about what they saw. God bless them. But the Justice Department's been AWOL on election integrity measures the last four years. Judicial Watch, I talked about our litigation to clean up the rolls. Justice Department has virtually done nothing. They came in after the fact in one case in Kentucky and helped us get a consent decree, but we had done all the legwork. They've done nothing since. Attorney General Barr made a statement a few weeks ago highlighting the fact that U.S. attorneys are supposed to enforce the rule of law on voter fraud, and they should 
consider information. Kind of shouldn't even have to say something like that. And the election integrity chief in the Justice Department, you know, asked to be moved out of his position because he was so outraged by it. This guy, Richard Pilger, we had figured out years ago, had worked with Lois Lerner's IRS to try to prosecute the very groups that Lois Lerner was persecuting. So you had this corrupt official at the Justice Department in charge of election integrity. Does that help explain why nothing's been done? And you can bet the rest of the folks underneath him aren't doing much either. Let me tell you something about the Justice Department. It's full of left-wing partisan Democrats who, to the degree they are involved in anything sensitive, have zero interest in pursuing the rule of law in a way that pushes against their ideological and political interests. For instance, during the Obama administration, the Justice Department spent all of its time attacking voter ID laws. Anytime a new voter ID law was moved or pushed or modified in a way that made it stronger, uh, the Justice Department under Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch were there to try to subvert it. We'd have a voter ID law, practically speaking, in North Carolina if it weren't for the Justice Department coming in and trying to undo it. So it's been AWOL. And here, uh, Attorney General Barr, you know, pretend that there's no voter fraud out there that worth, worth uh, that could raise questions about the outcome of the election. I, I don't understand where he's getting his information from. Now, since then, because there's been such blowback, they said, oh, well, we're still investigating any issues of fraud and such. Well, what about what's going on in Georgia? I just described to you this lawsuit. There's a lawsuit, the, the, the Trump lawsuit alleges 10,000 plus deceased people may have voted, as many as 10,315 is the exact number, may have voted. Well, that would be a crime, not only state crime, but a federal crime. Where's the Justice Department on that? Is that evidence of voter fraud? Is that... They're AWOL. I'm telling you, they're AWOL. They're not doing an investigation. It's just like Durham all over again. Oh, and speaking of Durham. Well, I've told you, I've talked enough about election integrity. The crisis continues. Judicial Watch is working on it. Others are working on it. And you need to work on it by talking to your state legislators and Congress about their constitutional duties to ensure that the real winner as uh, in an election validly conducted is confirmed as president. Now, secondly, we've had other developments uh, since we last talked. I want to talk about first uh, General Flynn, who finally has been given a pardon by President Trump, a well-deserved pardon. He was lawlessly targeted as part of a conspiracy to destroy the Trump presidency and the Trump campaign by the Obama gang. They lied about what Flynn was doing. They knew he was innocent. The documents show they knew he was innocent, yet they prosecuted him anyway and abused his civil rights. And Judge Sullivan in this case has been acting, uh, who's the judge who's been handling the criminal case, has been abusing his power in a way that is just, just simply shocking, just shocking from a federal judge. Yeah, the Justice Department try to end the case and Judge Sullivan is contrary to law and orders from the appellate court just simply refused to do so. 
obviously hoping that a Biden administration will come in and reverse the Justice Department decision to drop the case and further harass and try to make a political prisoner out of General Flynn. So God bless General Flynn and his family, who I know has been placed, been pushed, um, been placed, excuse me, been abused in so many ways. I mean, he was, essentially, he was a prisoner in his own home. I mean, he couldn't travel away. You know, just because he wasn't in jail doesn't mean he had the freedom and civil rights any other American did. He was still subject to the jurisdiction of the court. It's like he was on probation, practically speaking. So now he's a free man. He wasn't a free man before the pardon. He was not a free man. And if I were President Trump, I'd go on a pardon tear. I've always, this is the mantra, pardons, prosecutions, and transparency. He should pardon everyone caught up in the Mueller investigation. I know the left is trying to scare him from pardoning his family and pardoning himself and and giving preemptive pardons. Of course, he has the power to do that. And they don't want him to do that because they want to prosecute his family. They want to prosecute President Trump at the federal level. They are never going to stop harassing and abusing him, and he should pardon. He should do. Uh, he should pardon uh, Manafort. I'd even pardon his his um, his his uh, corrupt lawyer, Cohen. Believe it or not, I don't think he should pardon Hillary Clinton. I don't think he should pardon Joe Biden. But he should pardon everyone who was targeted by Mueller, because those investigations. Or tainted. We also found out that Attorney General Barr appointed uh, Durham as special prosecutor or special counsel in October. I think it was October 19th, three weeks before the election. Of course, he didn't tell anyone in America about it, at least anyone publicly. So that was withheld from the American people. Isn't it interesting how all these Justice Department decisions tend to go towards protecting the swamp, the Obama gang, and hurting President Trump? Now, I know that's not, it's, it's not always that way, but isn't it, isn't it amazing how they all tend to do that? Now, I, you know, uh, our friend uh, Andy McCarthy has suggested that um, under the Justice Department regulations that uh, Durham can't really even be a special prosecutor because special prosecutors are supposed to come from outside the Justice Department. But uh, I guess the Attorney General can do whatever he wants, right? Now, I'm not as excited about Durham being a special prosecutor as... Um, because I don't think it really means that much, other than it makes it harder if Joe Biden is ultimately selected president for Biden to come in and interfere with the prosecution or whatever Biden, Durham's doing. And as I keep on telling you, I don't think he's doing much. I don't think he's doing much. I've seen no evidence that there's going to be significant prosecutions of significant figures. In fact, uh, in this interview, which Barr talked to dis dissed evidence about voter fraud, he suggested that the uh, scope of uh, Durham's inquiry has narrowed considerably to only focus on uh, the crossfire uh, hurricane investigation, the opening of it. 
Of course, we already knew it's corrupt and full of lies because Judicial Watch already has proven it. So I don't know what why he needs. It's now April of last year he was appointed. So we're now coming up on the two-year anniversary this April of the appointment of John Durham. And we've had one prosecution. And it was a prosecution that was handed to him on a silver platter. And this guy, Mr. Kleinsmith, the FBI lawyer who messed with um, uh, lied and altered documents to uh, ensure Carter Page would get his FISA, illicit FISA warrant targeting him and Trump. He's going to be sentenced or supposed to be sentenced next week. I think on June, on maybe, maybe it's next Friday, December 10th, whatever that day is. Not much is happening. So by narrowing it, you can bet that Brennan isn't going to face prosecution or anyone else of that nature. Of course, he hasn't talked to Obama. He hasn't talked to Biden. He hasn't talked to Hillary Clinton. At, at least there's no evidence he's talked to any of those people. None of them have gone before grand juries, right? We'd know about it if that happened. So it's a big fail. And I don't know what the president has planned. You know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, he's kind of in a hard situation because he thinks, I think, with some justification <laughs> that he won. Uh, but the entire establishment is trying to push him out the door. So he's got a kind of plan to be there if and plus also plan to leave potentially. Right. So I'm suggesting these ideas because they work whether or not he stays or goes. Appoint three special counsels. One for Joe Biden, one for Obamagate, one for election fraud. And if Barr won't do it, because Durham isn't doing it. And I, and I don't mean special counsel by bringing in some U.S. attorney who has the loser Justice Department approach that we seem to get a lot out of. They seem to get a lot of. I mean, bring in an outsider and let them do an investigation of the Justice Department. Keep the FBI out of it. I mean, a serious independent special prosecutor. You can ask bars for advice who, who might be a good guy, but they shouldn't answer to the bar. They should answer to the White House. Justice Department is compromised. Oh, we have to have independent investigations. No, that's not what the Constitution says. The Justice Department, did you vote? Did you vote the Justice Department to run the country? I didn't. I voted for the president to run the country. I mean, Joe Biden talks about an independent Justice Department. That's unconstitutional. I mean, this is, we have to be consistent. Even if Biden is president, we should recognize that the president has the authority to run a Justice Department. So special prosecutors galore, transparency, get all the documents out, declassify. There are other documents that have been withheld or being stonewalled that they should accelerate the release of. And as I said, all of that can be done whether or not the president is staying or going. And it should be done sooner rather than later, meaning now.
if you want something right, do it yourself, right? And that's what the president needs to do. He can't rely on Attorney General Barr anymore. He just can't. And it doesn't, I, I, it, I keep on going back, and I guess it's irrelevant because I like a lot of people who I don't disagree, who I disagree with. You know, because I'm sure Barr and I would have a very friendly discussion about how things have been going, right? And I'm sure he'd be very persuasive on some points, but it's just the proof is in the pudding and the pudding ain't there. So going back to the elections, we're all supposed to believe in the security of these voter machines, right? Well, wrong. Uh, we have um, a number of issues out there as it relates to voter machines. Uh, the first one, obviously, it's, it's, I go back to this Chavez controversy with Smartmatic and Dominion. What is beyond almost reason, uh, what, what is beyond all reasonable doubt is that Hugo Chavez used a computer system set up by Smartmatic, an election system, to steal an election many years ago. And uh, the question is, are those computer systems, election computer systems that were used so easily to steal election in Venezuela, is that type of system widely being used in the United States where it is easy to change the outcome of an election? We're, we're, I think it's fair to ask that question. Some people say there's evidence that actually happened. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm open to it because it happened once in Venezuela, and I'm worried it could happen again here. Why am I worried? Because I listen to the left, I guess, right? Because the left is concerned about the security of these election systems. At least they were up until it became politically inconvenient in the 2020 election cycle. I'm old-fashioned. I think, you know, you should count ballots, kind of a paper ballot system or a machine count system where you basically have a dumb machine that just pushes out numbers that's not connected to the internet or not connectable to the internet. But that's a whole other debate. So we have these, these new documents that have come out that I think are interesting in terms of context. In, in Georgia, uh, Secretary Kemp at the time, who's now Governor Kemp, complained to the Department of Homeland Security that there was a scanning event or attempts to breach his security systems on his website, and he yelled at the HS about it. Brian Kemp wrote then DHS Secretary Jay Johnson, who was Obama's secretary, and he accused DHS of, quote, an unsuccessful attempt to penetrate the Georgia Secretary of State's firewall. And it looked like there were other states that had concerns of that nature as well. So we got DHS documents showing that something did happen. Now, what they say happened was innocent. The scanning event was the result of a Federal Law Enforcement Training Center users Microsoft Office Discovery Protocol sending a packet with the options flag to the Secretary of State Georgia's site. That's a quote from the document. The minutes note that the Enterprise Security Operations Center has received requests from the uh, National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center at DHS and another agency to investigate other states that have seen suspicious activity. The minutes of the uh, discussion note that Kemp accused DHS of conducting illicit scans in at least 
several occasions, February 2nd, 28th, and May 23rd, and they say it was innocent. I could go into detail and detail here, but uh, it's, I'm not a computer expert, you're probably not, it's available online, but I want you to read the full emails and see if you're convinced. Now, of course, the DHSIG looked at all of this and said, oh, it was all innocent. They weren't asking for sensitive data. I don't know. Doesn't seem like that way to me because this is the crux of the release, I think. Acting Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer Gene Etzel replies to a official because the official wrote, at this time, we cannot validate users with ease for these past timestamps, meaning these scans, due to the lack of, of due to the lack of authentication logs. Ah, isn't that interesting? So the response from this information officer, who's supposed to be responsible for being forthright with the American people. When this gets published in 4,000 in the four o'clock, don't say lack of logs, say something about logs are maintained for XX days and the events in question occurred XX days, therefore our logs uh, XX days ago, therefore our logs are overwritten, overwritten per our standard retention policy. Someone else says, FYI, please use the lens of press release and senior leaders. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Does it sound good to you? So, as I say, the Obama DHS was caught scanning the Georgia Secretary of State's website in 2016, again, and these documents show that details about the controversy may have been overwritten. So the left have been telling us all these systems were secure when when they were running the government, they were proving that they were they were actually willing to break, try to break through them. I mean, that's how I read this. I don't see anything innocent about this activity. And if you disagree with me, I mean, like I said, this is my analysis. Go to our website and look at the documents yourselves and see if you agree with me or not in my analysis. So there's a lot going on. I encourage you to support Judicial Watch in our efforts here. I know there are a lot of people doing a lot of great work. Uh, Judicial Watch has been doing this work for years and years. I remember in, 2020, in 2000, I was in Florida with our team exposing fraud during the election there. And we've been doing that work ever since. And in addition to our work covering Obamagate, holding Hillary Clinton accountable, doing the work that no one else here in Washington is doing. So I know this time of year is big for gift giving and I encourage you to consider Judicial Watch and your gift giving. Another way to support Judicial Watch is by buying, I don't have the book in front of me here uh, with me, but buying our latest book, A Republic Under Assault. I tell you, it is an urgent read. If you wanna know how the left is set up the steal, you can't read a better book. Plus, we expose Obamagate, and the, the plot against the president, the plot against our sovereignty. Details you won't find anywhere else. I encourage you to get the book, a plot, uh, excuse me, a Republic Under Assault. 
or go to the Judicial Watch store and buy some merchandise. That's another way to support us or just make a donation to us directly because no one does what Judicial Watch does to preserve and protect the Constitution and vindicate your right to know. So I want you to have a great week and uh, hopefully I'll be back here next week with, I know I'll be back here next week. We've got more news coming out and I'll keep you abreast obviously of the developments on the election crisis. Have a great week and I'll see you next time here on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.